Good morning. Thank you, Kelly. Beautiful job. Take your Bibles and turn back with me this morning. Colossians chapter number 3 and verse number 22. This section of God's Word is all about relationships. Beginning in verse 18, God had instructions for husbands and wives. Then the next section, beginning in verse 20, was about parents and children. And in our text today, God has a word for employees and employers. For some of you, the study thus far about husbands and wives and parents and children has been a very timely and fruitful discussion. But for others, you may have felt a little bit left out. Some of you have been married so long, you think you have that relationship pretty well figured out. As far as advice about children, for some of you, your children are already grown and raising children of their own. Perhaps for some of you, you're left alone because your spouse is gone. A group of you are not even thinking about marriage at this stage of your life, and you don't even want to entertain the thought of children. Well, the subject that Paul addresses today is one that all of you can relate to. I know some of you are retired and that some of you are mothers, you work at home, and some are self-employed, but these verses in Colossians chapter 3 speak to all of us, and it's more than just about working a nine-to-five job. These words instruct us about the very attitudes with which we live and how we approach any task in life. At the time that this letter was written, slaves made up about 50% of the population of the Roman Empire. That's right, one out of every two people was a slave. To put things in perspective, in 1860, the total slave population of the United States was never more than 13% of the population. The Apostle Paul is not condoning slavery, but slavery was a social reality at the time that Paul wrote this letter, and it was a reality that he could neither change nor ignore. It is if Paul says, I cannot change your situation, but I can help you change your attitude concerning your situation. If you read a lot of commentaries, you'll discover that many commentaries, when they get to verse 25 in chapter 3 of the book of Colossians, they pass over those verses with little more than addendum of a few sentences on the relationship with Christianity and slavery. Because these instructions are addressed to servants or slaves and masters, some see no application to the modern world. Certainly those words had very real application to the relationship of first century slaves and their masters, and what was expected when they became Christians. But rather than look at the historical application in the past, I want to see today that there are principles that readily translate 
into the relationship between workers and employers. We have to admit that employees are not slaves, and employers are not masters in the strictest sense. The the word bondservant means slaves, and slaves at that time were considered property, just like a farm implement. They belonged, heart and soul, to the master. Times have changed. Circumstances have changed. But the underlying principles remain valid for all times. Read with me again, beginning in verse 22. It says, Bondservants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service, as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. And whatever you do, do it heartily, as to the Lord, and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. For he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, give your bond servants that which is just and fair, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. In our day, when many think that work is boring and pointless, when they have to deal with abusive bosses who weigh them down with ludicrous and unproductive rules, they tend to live for the weekend. Through the work week, they do as little as possible to get by. But as Christians, we are to have a different word work ethic. In an age where workmanship is notoriously poor, where very few have pride in their workmanship, and where dishonesty on the job is rampant, these teachings are very much needed. Now, it needs to be remembered that these instructions from Paul come with a return to Colossae of a runaway slave, Onesimus. Onesimus, the runaway slave of Philemon. Onesimus had become a believer and voluntarily was returning to his master. Paul is naturally concerned that both men, both the servant and the master, handle the problem in the light of being followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have two sets of instructions before us this morning. First of all, the instruction to the workers. Verses 22 through 25, and we look first of all at the responsibility that is outlined for the worker. It says, Obey in all things your master according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God, and whatever you do, do it heartily as the Lord and not to men. I see three things here for us as we look at the responsibility that we are to have in whatever task we are assigned in life, first of all, we should take our job seriously. No matter what your job is, your motto should be, do good work. Unfortunately, some servants who had Christian masters were abusing that privilege, just as some Christians today abuse working for Christian employers and Christian organizations by doing less than their best. 
I have to admit I have even heard of Christians who have ignored their work so that they might witness to their co-workers. They justify their neglect of their duty by saying, but I'm trying to lead someone to the Lord. Friend, we need to understand that you witness best when you do your job. While you may be seeking to reach out to people with the gospel, you may also be alienating the people who have to take up the slack for you not doing your job and the alienation of the boss who's not getting paid, who is not getting the work that he has paid you to do. You come across as lazy, not faithful. The person who works well is much more credible witness than he or she who does not. Secondly, not only take your job seriously, but work at your job <clears throat> sincerely. Not with eye service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. Now, what does eye service mean? I think you all really understand what it is. You may not know. It's when you're, work, you're sitting at work and someone says, Quick, get to work, the boss is here. That's eye service. Suddenly, everybody appears to be hard at work, making phone calls, working on the computer, whatever they're supposed to be doing at the time. That's eye service. When you work hard because you know the boss is watching, and you slack off when he leaves. It also speaks to performing a job only superficially, that is, going through the motions of service. It also speaks of doing something only to be seen or taken notice of, men-pleasing in the hopes of advancement. All work is to be done with sincerity of heart. Literally, the word means without a fold. Without a fold. This denotes work that is completely sincere without any hidden motivations. One must understand that God sees both the attitude and the action. And the third responsibility is to work at your job eagerly. Verse 23. And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men. In any position of employment, it is possible to do the job, but to still do it in a cold and perfunctory way. Paul, therefore, instructs that whatever you do, do it heartily. The Holman Christian Standard Bible translates heartily as enthusiastically. I like that word because the English word enthusiasm comes from two Greek words, which mean in God, in theos. In God. The meaning is God in us. The more you are aware of God in you, the more enthusiastic you should be in your work. I think the greatest problem facing many people concerning their work is the discouragement that nobody notices or pays attention to what we do. In the church, we often talk about the need for a servant's heart. But have you ever really thought about what that means to have 
a servant's heart. A businessman once asked his Bible study group, how can you tell if you have a servant's attitude? The answer, by the way you react when you're treated like one. By the way you react when you're treated like a servant. He says that we are to do our work as to the Lord. You know, when you buy an article of clothing, you buy a new suit, you stick your hand in the po- in your pocket, you're liable to find a little piece of paper. And on that paper it says, inspected by, and there's a number. That is the number of the person who has the responsibility for inspecting the quality of, of the workmanship on that garment. In a spiritual sense, there's a tag attached to every piece of work that you and I do in our lives, which says, inspected by God. William Barclay says it this way, it is the conviction of every Christian worker that he produced what he produces must be good enough to show to God. That's quite a thought. Not only the responsibility, but also the reason in verse 24 and 25, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ, but he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done, for there is no partiality. Paul says Notice this first word in verse 24, knowing. Based on knowing. Knowing beyond a shadow of of a doubt is what this word means. It emphasizes the lasting nature and the permanence of this knowledge. Based on this knowledge that one serves the Lord in all that he does, Paul says it gives us two reasons why people should serve faithfully. One positive, a reward, and the other negative, a judgment. First of all, he talks about faithful service will receive a reward. You will receive the reward of the inheritance. The reward mentioned is defined here in a way not mentioned in the parallel account of Ephesians chapter 6. The inheritance here, of course, is everlasting life. In the presence of the Lord, it is the ultimate reward of every Christian. But even beyond that, there is the reality in which every Christian, although forgiven of sin, will still have his or her works judged for reward. This judgment will be either good or bad depending upon our performance. Paul says in his letter to the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. The primary purpose of the judgment seat is to assess and reward believers for the way that they have used the opportunities and just and discharge their responsibilities. Now there are a number of things that you can look through your Bible and find out that we will be examined on that day. 
but I just want to examine one that I have think has special consideration for us, and that is our service to Christ, especially our treatment of other believers. The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 10, For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown toward his name, in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. Not only is faithful service rewarded, but secondly, poor service will be judged. Just as surely as there will be a reward for good things done for faithfulness, there will be a judgment for wrong. This would include doing less than you are capable of capable of doing, doing only what is absolutely necessary to, to keep from getting in trouble. This is going to sound a little hard, harsh. When you cheat your employer, when you do less than your best, when you are lazy, when you show up late, when you are not respectful, when you are not conscientious, when you are not sincere and not eager, you are sinning against God. And you are no better than a common thief. We should be industrious. Confidential surveys reveal that the average American worker goofs off seven hours per week. The, seven, the same survey reveals that one half of all American workers admit to chronic malingering, that is, calling in sick when they're not. And only one out of four give their best effort at work. Since we work for the Lord, we should attack our work with zeal instead of dawdling over it and figuring how little we can do and still get by, which is theft. We should cultivate being prompt and hardworking, whether the boss is watching or not. We should pursue quality in our work. And since we work ultimately for the Lord, our work should be the best we can offer. Finally, it means that our ethical conduct should be high. Confidential surveys reveal that one out of four workers compromise their beliefs to get ahead on the job. A higher percentage justify unethical actions on the job for personal advantage. The problem is that decades of moral relativism are coming home to root. Lying, theft, backstabbing, sexual innuendos may be commonplace in the secular workplace, but they are incompatible with serving and representing Christ. We are called to let our light shine. Secondly, there is instruction to the employer. Masters, give your bondservants what is just and fair, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. This is one of those places where it is unfortunate that the chapter division is made at this point. It's made at chapter 3, verse 22, and begins a new chapter at verse 1. But we have to remember that chapter divisions are man-made. They are not divine. 
it is obvious that the first verse of chapter 4 is a part of and indeed the conclusion of the instruction on work relationships that began in verse 22. The parallel account in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 9 says, And you masters, do the same things to them. Give up threatening, knowing that your own master also is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. Here Paul reminds the reader that there is no partiality with God. The King James Version translates that there is no respect of persons. Literally what it means is receiving one's face. It is a reminder that with God's judgment, God's judgment is made on the inner person, not on the outer appearance. Responsibilities are outlined. Master, give your servant, bond servants, what is just and fair. Now those are two different things because they both have definite articles attached to them. It reads that which is just and that which is fair. When we say just, that word is a legal term, which means right within the law. It means that they receive simple justice and fair. That word is usually translated equal. It means impartial treatment. We see an example of this kind of equality that he's talking about in the historical setting of this letter. As we have already noted, Onesipus, the runaway slave, is returning to his master Philemon. And in so doing, he is going even beyond what is prescribed in the law. Philemon is appealed to by Paul to receive Onesimus no longer as a slave, but as a beloved brother. We have a witness here of the transforming power of the gospel. The reason that we are told that the master is to take this form of behavior is he says, knowing that you you also have a master in heaven. Paul reminds us all that no matter what possession, position we hold in life, we have a heavenly master to, who watches the character and the conduct of all men. It's simply a reminder of the principle of the golden rule. We should treat all men with the same consideration that we would like to receive from our master in heaven. Let me conclude by saying that Christianity has been accused at times of being just a a promise pie in the sky by and by. It really has very little to do with living every day in a real world. But that, of course, is simply not true. In fact, sometimes the extreme is taken when individuals teach what is called liberation theology. That is, 
They make salvation more in terms of political and economic liberation than being saved. But the truth is that the focus of Scripture has always been on true freedom. The only one that really counts. The freedom found in salvation by faith in Jesus Christ. In reality, Christianity is a very practical relationship, giving principles that are to be to govern how we are to live on a daily basis. We live in a day and age when we need to reestablish the Judeo-Christian work ethic. The advice that Paul gives will work well in our world, and if applied, will make one a valuable and sought-after employee. In the process, we also find there is satisfaction in a job well done that goes beyond just a paycheck. There's a joy that comes from doing what is right, even beyond immediate rewards. There is a sense of well-being and blessing that cannot come from the world at all. It is the well-being that comes from feeling that we have pleased the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, that it never changes, that it always calls us to step up and live better than we are. We ask, Lord, that you'd help us as we apply these truths in our lives to make us more deliberate in working for the Lord. We ask, Lord, that you would help us to be better employees, that we would live in the constant awareness that we do our work not just to get a paycheck, not just to, to please an employer, but to please you. And those who have responsibility over, over others, help us, Lord, to remember that we too have a master in heaven and that you want us to treat people the same way that we want you to treat us. Father, there may be someone here that has never really turned their lives over to you, and thus really none of this really applies because they've not first had the freedom from sin. So, Father, if there's one here today who has never called upon you to be forgiven of their sins, we ask, Lord, you'd speak to their heart. Help them to understand that this morning right here, they can make that decision. They can call out to you in their own words, simply admitting that they are a sinner and they have a desire to be saved, calling upon you to save them and that you will save them. Father, for all the rest of us, I pray that you'd show us how you want these things to be applied in our lives. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand?